Well, g'day guys, and welcome to another episode of Life in the Peloton. The season has well and truly kicked off. The first races have started to happen. I'm back from training camp, and Lionel, you're in the middle of your training camp there in the indoor machine. How's it going there, mate? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of riding, Mitch, on the indoor trainer. Uh, the weather here in the UK hasn't been fantastic. We had a bit of snow a couple of weeks ago or a weekend a bit ago. So indoor training has uh, been keeping me fit. So I'm looking forward to getting back outside on the road and hopefully feel the benefit of a, of a month riding indoors. I can guarantee that, mate. I've been through that myself last year and I was absolutely flying come that first race. So... Organise yourself a race and you will be reeking in the benefits once the sun comes out. But that's not going to be till a long time for you, I'm, <laughs> I'm afraid to say. <laughs> well, this week on Life in the Peloton, we've taken a bit of a different tact. We're talking to Jack Thompson, who is an ultra cyclist. And what I mean by that is he takes on these ultra events. And why he does that is he's suffering from clinic depression and he, he's trying to find a way about how to counter that. And the bike is his medicine. I'm not going to say too much more about that, but it's a fantastic episode. Sit back and enjoy this one. I was When I was speaking to him about it, is I was able to see so much correlation to what we do on the bike as a pro cyclist. And there were so many great little insights and things that he goes through out there on the bike that I'm able to relate to as a pro cyclist as well. But before we get to the episode, I've got some fantastic and exciting news coming up. I alluded to it last week. Life in the Peloton has collaborated with Rafa and we are making the first official Life in the Peloton kit. I'm super excited about it. It's been a lot of work, but if you guys want to get your hands on some of that, you've got to get over to lifeinthepeloton.com and subscribe to our newsletter to get the first official drop of that. It's coming up. If you're not a subscriber, you're not going to be able to get your hands on any. So make sure you get across and get yourself subscribed to hear more about what's coming. But now we're going to get into the chat with Jack Thompson. So sit back and enjoy that. Yeah, just before we hear from your conversation with Jack, um, he talks about his Everesting challenge where he Everested three mountains in uh, each of the countries that host a Grand Tour. So that's Italy, France and Spain. An absolutely incredible challenge that he set himself. Uh, he talks about a climb that he calls the Bonnet. I just wanted to give people a heads up that that's the Col de la Bonnette that he's referring to. Very well-known climb that's featured in the Tour de France, of course. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make sure people knew which of the climbs he was talking about. But uh, let's get into your conversation with Jack Thompson. All right, here we are, life in the Peloton. We've taken a bit different curve today. I'm talking with Jack Thompson, well, Jack Ultra Thompson, because he's ultra in many ways, but welcome, Jack. We're going to talk about that. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, mate. You're up at my place. We're kicking back, and we've got a lot, of t- lot to talk about today, but first off the bat, I want to talk about that name, Jack Ultra, and I want you to explain a little bit about what you do on the bike. It's a bit different to what I do, but essentially it's the same thing. We're still pedaling, but you just do it a hell of a lot more than me, believe it or not. The name is a little bit embarrassing as we touched on before. I'm not like the ultra Jack. It was just Jack and I do ultra cycling. So we came up with like Jack ultra cyclist. But yeah, essentially what I do is I pick sort of challenges, design these challenges and then go about doing them on the bike. And for me, it's like a bit of a release from, 
I guess, the sort of inner demons that I uh, suffer with. But at the same time, like I love just being out on the bike. So yeah, every year I choose a couple of different challenges and go about undertaking them. And yeah, we, we started filming them and putting together films around them. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good way to exist. Well, there's a quite a lot I want to touch on there that you just said, and you talked about some demons, but I want to talk about, before we get into that, not even to talk about that lightly, I want to talk about that after this because I want to give everyone a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about with the ultras so I don't know exactly when it started from from what I could understand in 2017 you started on the board with something the 50,000 K in a year to give anyone an idea of how many K's that is as a pro you typically do about 30,000 K so you've just gone you know what I'll chuck another 20 on top and I want you to run us through each of these I just run through the last few years 2018 you did Taiwan KOM it's an epic climb. You did it four times nonstop, 720K, about 13,000 meters in altitude, 56 hours, you know, whatever. <laughs> Two, 219, you stepped it up and went, you know what, I do like climbing. There's this Everest thing that everyone's doing. Why don't I just do it three times and in three countries in three days? 880K, 26,000 altitude meters as well. And 219, last year, you did the GP 1200, which I didn't know anything about. 1200K across to Portugal. How do you say the town you arrived in? Caramulo. Almost like a caramello koala, like caramello caramulo. And it was very neat. 1200K, 1200 meters altitude. And then that pushed you on to this year, what I want to talk about at the end. The seven days three and a half thousand k so these are like i'm just rolling them off my tongue like they're just sort of like yeah i did three days to punter and then i did you know a race over in france i did this and but these are epic things and i'm just rolling them off tell me about each of those if you can all right let's step back 2017 when we did the fifty thousand. that was never like a planned thing that was just like i wasn't working anymore i decided i wanted to ride a bike for a living and i was sort of doing some tours and bits and pieces with different tourism boards and I just happened to ride 50,000 kilometers like jumping on the bike was all I sort of had to do and so I just took advantage of it and smacked out some big k's and it it just happened to be just over 50,000 but 50,000 sounds better than 50,117 or whatever it was (laughs) so that was 2017 fast forward to 2018 I decided I wanted to film something and I was sitting at a coffee shop with a mate back in Perth and we said, you know, what, what can we do? It was August or something. We said, oh, what events are on? And the only sort of event that was on being based in Perth that was close was the Taiwan KOM. Mm. And we thought, oh, well, why don't we take advantage of an existing event and try and get some media coverage around doing something silly? It was literally out of the bag. I said, why don't we do it four times nonstop <laughs> and do the final one as part of the race? Why, why four? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why it was four and three. Any, or? Had you done any maths at that point? You're like, okay, that's going to be that amount of altitude, that's amount of time. You just literally just pick four. You're like, oh, it's better than two. I think four for me in my mind, because I'd done the climb the year before okay. as part of a tourism trip. And I think four was like, yeah, that's, like that challenges my own perception of what's going to be hard. So mm. let's give four a stab. Mm. Uh, so yeah, basically... Got a, got a mate who was a filmmaker back in Perth and my old man and my mate Zach who's a photographer and we basically just went to Taiwan a bit of a lads trip and <laughs> set about doing this climb four times and yeah we put like together a super sick little video and that was like the first real like foray into doing the film stuff mm. and I was like 
you know, by doing the film stuff, I can, you know, talk about how I've suffered from depression and mental health issues. Maybe I can, you know, reach a bigger audience by doing these sort mm. of crazy things and actually talking about something that's relevant too. Mm. And we had like a real success with that film. The following year, I wanted to, I had a, an event that I wanted to do based around the Tour de France. And we were seeking funding from SBS back in Australia. And at the time it fell through. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Like I, I basically had this massive opening and I, you know, I was a little bit lost. Mm. And of all, I was in Bhutan at the time running Where's a Bhutan? tour. So Bhutan's just north of India and south of China, sandwiched in between in the Himalayas mm. and I was running a tour there with it was a couple of guys from Perth like a gravel tour and one of the guys says oh why don't you do something around the, the Grand Tours and we were I remember we were walking to a bakery one arvo after we finished riding we're saying what can we do what can we do and we said why don't we why don't we try and Everest the highest peaks in the three Grand Tour countries mm. and then he said oh and yeah you have to do it in three days <laughs> and why just to make oh, it more epic. Just like three, three, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like trying to create some sort of time yeah. limits. And yeah, nice. So yeah, again, I hired, got a filmmaker from Perth, a mate, and took Zach and my dad again, and <laughs> off we went for another lads trip around uh, Europe. So we we Everested uh, Stelvio in Italy. Oh my god! And then uh, Col de la Bene in France. How wait? How many? T- what what do you have to do to Everest Stelvio? I think the Stelvio is six times. Okay. Six, six or seven times. Was it was it bad doing it like that? Because it's it's a long climb, and I, what I understand from Everesting is people choose climbs that they do, I don't know, five k segments and just pump it out. But like you, you have to settle in on Stelvio. The worst thing about Stelvio is you know every corner tells you how many corners you've got yeah. to go, so you're counting down the switchbacks. Was the descending annoying? Were you like, I just want to get going on the next climb? Yeah, and the traffic was. You know, like the middle of summer, the traffic's super bad. So you're like weaving in and out of buses and things. <laughs> and my old man in the camper van, he actually tried to take a corner a little bit too fast. Luckily, the inside corner and the back wheel sort of dropped off into the culvert and the, <laughs> the waste tank under the, the car got ripped out. So we had like big disasters there. Did you have to stop and like help out? I just kept going. Oh, yeah, Fortunately, the boys picked up the waste container and put it in the back of the, yeah. of the camper van. <laughs> So yeah, basically finished that Everesting. I jumped in the little bed in on top and we punted off, I think it was a 10 hour drive to, to France and said about doing the next one. What was that next bit? Um, Col de la Bonnet. Right. So I'd never heard of it before. I, I, I only know it, I've never ridden it. Yeah, it's a super nice climb actually. Mm. And a nice because there was less switchbacks. So I, I enjoyed that one. Although that middle one was hard because you, you already have one in your legs, you're doing that second one, and you know you've got one more still to come. What sort of time are they, what time did it take to do them? I think it was around, I think they were around 11 to 13 hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not super, super fast, but like it's a long time on the bike. Do you have any problems? I didn't have Like mechanical, something? Mechanical, no, nah, not one flat nothing it was super lucky yeah great and you're like looking back we were really underprepared it was like the day before oh what am i gonna eat oh let's go to the supermarket and buy like a whole heap of bread rolls and jam and <laughs> my old man like hey, you need some snickers bars they're real good too <laughs> you know we just it was, how many should we get i don't know 50 <laughs> like we had so much food like two mangoes and just shit <laughs> what was the third one the third one was we were meant to do the third one in granada oh, uh Pico. that's a big travel though that was a problem we were like 
time was running yeah. out and I wanted to get the three in three days. So we thought, why don't we do one in Andorra? Mm. I didn't really know Andorra. And so my mate Zach said, oh, yeah, the highest points, um, Port Enver- Port Envelera. Mm. He said, why don't you do the... Um, yeah, the Port Envelera climb from what's the centre of town in Andorra? Andorra Lavella. Yeah. Yeah. So we basically did that main road. Horrible road. Oh, horrendous. <laughs> it was like four, like super hot, 39, 40 odd degrees. And I remember we got to the end and my old man had been driving for basically three days nonstop. And it was getting real sketchy because he was like getting real tired at the wheel. And we pulled over almost at the top of the final ascent. And the old man hopped out to sort of cheer me on and forgot to put the handbrake on the van and oh, the no. van's rolling around and everyone's just <laughs> a bit paralytic. But we got to the top and, yeah, finished it, super stoked. Drove back down the mountain to La Vela and, again, the old man actually fell asleep at the wheel and just were lucky that I was awake and grabbed the wheel, but it was real sketchy. What was it like going up because... I can imagine when you're trying to do these challenges, not you, but other people, you don't want to do things like go too high in altitude because as you get tired, it gets very hard to ride altitude. But every time, and I know that climb especially, and also Stelvio, you're popping up above 2,000 meters. You know, the yeah. last 5K is from 2,000 to 2,4, especially the climb in Andorra you're talking about. And for me, just on a normal training day, even at the end of a six-hour day, that is so hard. Yeah. What was that like every time you went up the top and did that, that last pull to the top? It's hard, huh? Yeah. Like, just slowed right down. You're crawling, I guess. Yeah. And I remember at the end, like I was going down so slow because I was like tired. And then I guess the altitude was playing a bit with me and it was dark. And I'm sort of like, I'm thinking I'm seeing things. And like, it was just playing with my mind. Mm. And I think at the time, maybe I didn't realize, but that really would have fatigued me. I think I was just at the mindset, like I'm already fatigued. Like, come on, you know, you just got three or four more. Mm. But I think if I'd done that one first... I would have really felt the effects of the altitude more than mm. perhaps what I thought I did at the time. Mm. Interesting. Um, wow. Yeah, that's a bastard of a climb. It is a bastard. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm definitely not underestimating the other two as well, but I just know that climb more um, yeah. myself. Yeah, right. So let's. You've, you're alluding to a little bit of that mindset. I want you to just sort of explain these last two challenges because I know there's a whole lot in between, but these are the ones we're just going to focus on here for the moment. Tell us about this 2019 um, ride you did. GP yeah, so that was, um, I'd found out that it was World Mental Health Day on the 10th of October and there was actually a, a, the first gravel event in Portugal was being run on the 11th of October. So I thought, oh, why don't I ride over to Portugal and do the gravel event and like try and link it up with World Mental Health Day. So I contacted the organisers of the event over there who were super helpful and they said, yeah, yeah, we'll get try and help with some media bits and pieces and We'll put you up in a hotel and everything. So basically all I had to do was ride from Girona to Portugal and then I had an accommodation. Sweet, and, yeah. yeah. I, would, I didn't know that was available. I would yeah. do that, yeah. <laughs> it, was, um, it was a real tough, tough couple of days. Like, it's horrible land across there, isn't it? Like yeah. sort of barren desert sort of land. It's almost like Nullarbor-esque, like yeah. super slow and ups and downs. And yeah, it was that was a tough little one. Probably not the hardest one I've ever done but like it had a lot of meaning Mm -hmm. behind it and yeah being in Portugal and doing the event was super cool and meeting the Portuguese people was awesome Um, but that was sort of like a little add-on I guess after the after the Everesting so I was after the Everestings I decided I was going to move to Girona Mm. and then that was yeah I'm in Girona let's go do something and Mm. that sort of happened to be what it was 
Great. Well, let's go back a little bit now because we can talk about what happened this year. I want to talk a little bit about where you've come from and why, how you've ended up here today. You know, and from what I understand, you started out as a writer, and then you know you got your you got your degree in construction management and economics at university, and then you went across and you got a pretty good job. You're earning good cash, but then you can tell me a bit about the story. You you got some you had some drug addiction there about 2010, and what was going on around there? And tell me about that. You know, starting on the bikes as a young age, and then moving away from them, and then yeah, sure. So so I started riding when I was probably 13 and that was the first real time I I realized that I was suffering from depression and at the time I didn't start just riding I started with triathlon and um, I really enjoyed it and I did it all through school and I found you know just being active and sort of having these mini goals each day helped to sort of you know acted like a an escape from the depression it was like I've got to swim and then I've got to run and then I've got to ride and it's I always had things on so I almost forgot that I was down did you know this at the time or now looking back I knew it because I was seeing a psych and my parents had sort of encouraged me to go and chat to someone about it and I was yeah I I think it really helped chatting with someone at the Mm. time um but then in my final year of school I decided no I want to concentrate on school and you know I wanted to go to university and so I just I gave it away and said for a year I'm just gonna concentrate on studies but I noticed my mood really dipped off when I did that just the lack of exercise and the lack of sort of structure Mm. were you aware of that at the time were you thinking oh you know what I've just got to keep pushing on I think it was, you know, there's so much pressure in Australia at yeah. like that final year of school. Like, oh, if you don't do well, you're never going to succeed in anything. And I was, I think I was, I was stressed because of that. And I didn't mm. really put it together that it was, you know, a combination of probably the stress and not exercising anymore. But anyway, I got through it and I was sort of fine. And I got into university and started studying and the timing, it was good in that there was a construction boom in Perth at the time. Mm. But it was all, so basically it meant, you know, we were young guys at university that, you know, stepped into jobs while we were still studying because it was in demand and we were making good money while still studying. Yeah, you're in high demand, yeah. Yeah, but I was still living at home, so I had no real expenses and my my parents sort of looked after me in that regard, like I didn't have to pay rent at home. Mm. And I basically had a bit of a frivolous income and I was partying hard like, you know, teenagers do and... I have a bit of an addictive personality and I found I I became addicted to party drugs mm. and I was you know it wasn't just a weekend thing it became you know during the week I was you know taking bits and pieces and I felt like I sort of needed it to, yeah. to carry on with life that was sort of like my excitement at the time and I just remember coming home from work one day and I walked into my room and all, like basically all of the gear that I had was laid out on the bed and my parents had obviously suspected something and gone and searched my room and found everything. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking like, whoa, like, yeah, Shit. this is not good. Our old man is really anti-drugs and my, you know, my mum was, you know, always supportive of us, but like not if we were doing the wrong thing. Yeah. yeah. And I remember my dad said to me like, mate, we need to have a talk. He took me out for dinner and he said, look, unless you stop doing this, we're going to kick you out of the house and we're basically going to cut you out of the will. I remember he said that to me. He said, we don't want you as part of this family anymore. And that really struck home because like I have a really good relationship with my parents and I always have. And I thought I just can't afford to to not have them around me anymore. 
I basically came off the drugs cold turkey, so I didn't slowly come off. I just basically overnight said, no, I'm not doing that anymore. And Do you I, have to shut off quite a lot of you, that friendship group and things like that? or Yeah, I became like real sort of secluded. Like I'd, I would have to see my parents and my brother, but I wouldn't really socialize outside of that just because mm. some of the people I was hanging around with were bad influences. Mm. And... Because I came off cold turkey, although I think it was you know the right thing to do, I, I just went way off the deep end because I was living on a constant high and I went from that high to basically like the lowest low. And you know, I'm working and I'm not doing anything. And I just, I ended up in like a rehab clinic for a little while. Mm. And when I came out of that rehab clinic, I remember my old man said to me, and at this time we didn't have a great relationship because he'd sort of caught me and told me off and I didn't, as a teenager, you don't really enjoy that. I said to, he said to me, he said, why don't you get back on a bike? Like you haven't been on a bike for years and then we can do it together. And I remember thinking, fuck dad, like I don't want to go and yeah. ride with you and your mates. Yeah. Like I'm 20 or whatever I was. Yeah. And he kept pestering, kept pestering. And I thought, fuck, you know, I'm going to do it. I'll go Just out to once shut again. him up. Yeah. yeah. I'm sick of this. And I went and did it. And like, I was hooked like that first ride, like coming around the corners with the group. And, you know, I wasn't fit or anything, but I just loved that sort of like being in the group. And you're older and you had more speed. Like when you did it when you were younger, it's a different thing. Yeah. You, something, you could go fast. You could like do I, that. You know, in a group, slipstream. Yeah. I was like a bit aggressive because yeah. I was a bit older and like I loved it. And I remember going to work that day and I was on you know, bike exchange. Like, what bike can I buy? And like, you know, I was just looking, I wanted to get a bike. And I started riding more and putting a bit more structure around the training and things. Yeah, I started racing and I enjoyed the racing and, you know, I was addicted. You know, I loved training and, you know, all the stuff that goes with it. And while I raced at like an A grade level, I was never going to be really competitive, you know, mm. like racing any higher than that. And I came and did a little season in Belgium. I thought, yeah, I'll come here and, you know, do like two months here doing the Kenises, like just, and Just have a bit of fun in yeah, the, the rain. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I actually came to Girona. I thought after Belgium, I'm going to come to Girona and just check it out. And I'd heard all these things about it. And I basically uh, overcooked it. And, you know, I was, I was trying to lose weight, you know, like, yeah. you know, I was trying to be really skinny because that's how you sort of had to look. And I wasn't eating enough and training hard yeah and i went back to oz and i got diagnosed with chronic fatigue and so mm. then i you know spent this stint off the bike again not doing anything and I, how was just a, while you're saying that because yeah. this is something that as a cyclist and i can only speak from a cyclist point of view what you just alluded to then is actually quite a common thing that happens to a lot of aspiring pros or even pros and i might be speaking out of turn here but i get the feeling you become you know, a little bit depressed from it. You're trying mm. to achieve this goal and in order to achieve it, you're not going well. So you tighten the screws even tighter, but little do you know, you're actually doing worse. You're not yeah. eating when you should be eating. You'll be training more when you should be resting. And actually you just keep going down this downward spiral. So what I'd wonder with you is this, you were in this dark place, you found the bike that brought you back, but now what was it doing? Was it still allowing you to feel happy or were you, were you starting to slip back down in that I was slipping place. back down because I was like, I was, you know, I was always hungry and like, you know, performance was down because I wasn't eating and I wasn't really enjoying it anymore. Mm. It became more of like a chore, like, yeah. oh, I've got to go and ride. Like I didn't love it anymore. Yeah. And almost having that break afterwards when I, you know, did get diagnosed with a chronic fatigue was like a real blessing. <laughs> and when I eventually got back on a bike, I thought, you know what? I don't want to race anymore. I'm, I, I just want to enjoy riding. 
And at the time, my dad had retired a couple of years beforehand. And when he retired, he set this goal for himself. He wanted to ride his bike around the world. And so every year he'd go off and do like a little chunk cool. around the world. And so I thought, you know what? I want to do something like that. I want to go and just explore and, you know, use the bike for a bit of fun. Have control of your own adventures. Yeah. Just that, that word of adventure, like just go and ride here or ride there. Not because there's a group ride, but because you can, you know, like mm. just enjoy it. And, uh, yeah, that obsessive personality kicked in again and I started doing more and more and 150, 200, 300 wasn't enough. And it was at that point that I realized, you know, I'm not happy doing what I'm doing for work. I'd done, I'd entered like my first sort of ultra race, which was uh, a race in Europe, the transcontinental race. Mm. And I'd really enjoyed it. And I thought, you know what, you know, stuff work. I'm sick of it. I'm going to try and make a living out of the bike. I had no idea how, but I thought, you know, I only live once. Let's give it a shot. And so, yeah, just took a punt, quit work, and um, then I basically just had to sort of fend for myself and work out how I was going to survive. To help everyone understand exactly what these challenges and we, we spoke about the challenges just before and that's sort of where we're at now with your story you you led into this and you're like okay these what are the next challenges for me i want to self-support that but aside from the challenge what was that giving you for your own mental health your diagnosis there and to help everyone understand what exactly were you feeling in those times as someone who was clinically depressed or is clinically depressed yeah because i think I get the feeling this year, out of any year, if anyone's going to understand a little bit of what you go through on a day-to-day basis, this year's been a tough year for everyone. I don't care what anyone says on any level, people have seen yeah. some dark spots. Run us through a little bit of what you feel in these moments and then what the bike does for you. Not yeah. the challenges per se, but what you, what the bike as a drug does for you, releases. Yeah. If I was to, I guess, you know, dot point them, like the the sort of feelings I have, it's like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, you know, I don't really, I don't want to be social anymore. I'm, you know, the things I would normally enjoy, catching up with mates or going out for dinner, I just, no, I don't want to do that anymore. Like this, I just want to be alone. Mm. And you know, now I can really... I can see those trigger points like I know when I'm going back down into a dark hole because little things like this you know not wanting to be social not wanting to leave the house not wanting to get out of bed in the morning like just little trigger points like this and I think yeah you're spot on like this year is a tough year for everyone you know there's people without jobs there's people that this Christmas won't see families there's people Mm. who have lost loved ones and I think it's there's probably a lot of people out there that are, are really suffering at the moment and whether or not they realize, I think, you know, it's, yeah, it's super timely that we're, we're talking about it. For me, when I get on a bike, it's almost like an endorphin rush. It's almost like that sense of high I used to get when I did take party drugs, getting out that as corny as it sounds like the wind in your face or going around a corner or you know summiting a climb or just riding a new road whether it's you know two kilometers from home or 200 kilometers from home like it makes me feel like a kid again Mm. and i remember like as a kid like i I never used to worry about anything because there was nothing to ever worry about and the bike gives me that that sense of being a child again Mm. and i love that 
And I think, you know, the people I've spoken to that ride a bike, even if they're not depressed, they, they can still relate to those same feelings of freedom. Yeah. And I think it's nice, you know, whether it's, you know, freedom physically or freedom from your own mind. I think it's, yeah, the bike allows us to get out and explore and offers a sense of freedom. And to a small extent, you were talking about it then, you create your own goal and whether that might be do 50K today, you know, you only get one or two. You've taken that small goal and you achieve that. You get this great feeling of high to then your recent challenge. And I want to talk about that now, this seven-day challenge. This is something I'm more aware of. I've, I've been in tune with this. And getting to the dark, dark places, but then getting to that spot of going, I'm going to achieve this. And then that feeling of, I did it. You know, I have that feeling myself with races. That's what probably attracts me back to racing. Yeah. It's not just, I'm not a real, I'm not a winner, you know, like I've only got a couple of wins from my Palmares. So people go, you know, what keeps you going? There's more to it for me than that. But for you, it's not the racing, it's these challenges. And for me, I can see I'm not... I want you to explain this, but almost you have to get to this spot of, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And then you go deep within yourself and go, I did it. Yeah. I did it. And that's the feeling like I'm even getting a rush for it myself. When you, when you, you, as an athlete, you've got to keep pushing the bar. Yeah. You know, 50K is not enough anymore. First time I did 50K, it was tough, but 100, whatever it is. Yeah. And you've got to go to that point of, I don't know if I can do it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just did that. So yeah, yeah. Tell me. Like I, I love. I'm like you. Like I love setting little goals. Like whether it's a training goal or like an event goal, the sense of satisfaction afterwards is so high that yeah. like it is almost like you know it's like a bit of a there's a, there's the achievement aspect of it. There's the satisfaction aspect of it. There's the there's so many like you know positive aspects to setting goals and achieving them Mm. that i think like there's an addiction towards setting goals and achieving them and i think maybe we both suffer from it (laughs) Um, sure well then tell me about this because this is for me a crazy idea seven days three and a half thousand k in seven days it was the the old world record was just shy of that and you wanted to break this this year let's run through this idea yeah so i remember sitting in the apartment locked down pretty doom and gloom Again, I had this goal around the Tour de France this year and it was looking like the tour might be cancelled and you know, no one really knew what was going on. And I was sitting, I think, on Instagram or reading something online and I, I saw that a, uh, a guy, Bruce, had, had set a record for the most kilometres ridden in one week unsupported. And I thought, whoa, like, that number is impressive. And then I broke it down a little bit more and I thought, I reckon I can do 500k a day for seven days and that would give me a nice round number and mm. I like round numbers, you know, yeah. it sort of ticks that obsession <laughs> box a little bit. And I thought, you know, I reckon this is doable and I could probably do it in Spain without having to travel. And yeah, I think I'd I'd be satisfied if I, you know, a world record's like a pretty cool thing to have. <laughs> like growing up for Christmas, we always got the Guinness Book of Records in the stocking. <laughs> I thought, um, yeah, well, I, you know, I'm gonna give it a stab. So I, then I started planning like, where am I gonna do this? Spain's pretty hilly and the only place I could find where it looked flat was Sevilla in the south. And in my mind, I don't know why, I wanted to do basically an out and back course. Because for me, it, that would allow me to break it in half. So I know I've just got to go out and then I've got to come back. So once I hit the turnaround point, I've only got halfway. And I just I like to break it down a little mm. bit. So I thought, yeah, 
Sevilla's the only place I can do it. Let's get a little crew together. Let's apply Guinness World Records and find out what we have to do. And then let's set a date and go and do it. And yeah, that's basically what we did. We applied with Guinness. Um, wasn't a cheap process. <laughs> and there was a whole lot of rules that went with it. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, do I do it with Guinness or should I just go and just do, do it? Just do it, yeah. I thought, no, if I'm going to give it a stab, I'll go do it properly and do it with Guinness. And there was a whole heap of rules. Like for every hour I was riding, we had to film two minutes of that hour. And wow. we had to keep log books and then we had to submit it all. And it was like a super lengthy process. But uh, last week we got confirmation that it's official. So well, look, do the books still exist? The books still exist, but you're not guaranteed to be in it. So, oh, right. Because yeah. there's way too many. I think they go with the longest fingernails will pit me, so... <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the actual effort, because I want to talk about some, like, logistical stuff of this. Yeah. And I love the idea of the out and back, because 125k out, ultimately you go, well, you get to the furthest point, you're like, well, I just have to get back now. You know, there's yeah. no bailing out. But as you found out, the wind changes. Yeah. So what happened there? Some days you got double headwind. Yeah, so you'd be stomping into a headwind at two in the morning on your way out, thinking, like, yeah, tailwind, yeah, tailie home. And then you'd get there and, you know, two kilometers before you turn around, it swings and you're like, fuck. Like, so you get like 2K of tailwind. Yeah. That's the worst thing ever. <laughs> Even you know 10K of tailwind. Would yeah. Be and then you turn around and you punt back into it and the sun starts rising and like peak hour traffic and it's like yeah i've just got to get home now and then i can have some food and yeah so you're right we ended up breaking it into 125 out 125 back and then i was going to do that twice a day but yeah we worked out the headwind was a pain in the ass did you ever get double tailwind did that ever just help no, you out I, no it no. never happened never happened never happened what's going through your mind when that happens because potentially that is a really cracking moment yeah you get out there okay day one you go whatever double headwind i can handle this you know yeah. double session so maybe in the second session you go yeah whatever bring it yeah day two day three you're like i don't know if i can do this like what's going yeah. through your mind then what gets you through these moments in these ultra situations when it's time when most people have given up two days before let alone yeah. if they get that far, they just go, you know what, I'm done. You reminded me just quickly there, like yeah. I remember one day heading out and I'm looking at the, the speedo and my goal was I just wanted to basically average 30K average per day. That was your goal too? Yeah, because that would get me there in time. And anyway, I'm looking at 30 and then I turn around and get the headwind and the average speed is getting slower and slower and I'm just, you know, you start doing the maths like, yeah. oh, now I'm going to be on the bike for an hour longer and yeah. it just plays you there. <laughs> Were you, would you push harder or you knew that that would be detrimental to the next day? No, I, would, I was stupidly pushing harder because like, I wanted to hit the yeah. goals that I'd set each day. But yeah, we found that put me in like a real bad calorie deficit yeah. and I lost my appetite and it was, yeah. it was. What are some of the numbers? Like what sort of wattage would you sit on for like one of those sessions a day? Um, I think that, av- well, the normalized power for like day one was around 303 watts. Oh, Jesus. And the average speed was around 35. So that was pretty quick the first day. Were you pushing a bit too hard? Yeah, like you <laughs> went out of the gate stomping. Just felt so good. I was so ready to go. Did and you ever like a pretty fast rig? Yeah, I was on the S-Works tarmac with like the big 55 mil wheels. And yeah, yeah it's, it was super fast. But I remember coming back in on that first day thinking... Oh, my legs are toast and I've still got six more days. Like I've probably gone a bit hard here. Okay. But yeah, what gets me through? Uh, there's a couple of things. Like 
music for me is a big one. So I set music as a bit of a reward. So, for example, 125 out, 125 back. On the way out, I wouldn't listen to any music. And then my reward was on the way back, I'd listen to music all the way back. So I always had these mini Mm. rewards throughout the day. So I've got certain playlists I listen to, like a lot of house music, Mm. uh, a lot of sort of up-tempo stuff. I can just put that on and basically turn my mind off for six, seven, eight hours and just forget about what I'm doing and I'd literally just get lost in the music. There's no cracking point though for you, like where you just get overwhelmed, you're so tired something just pisses you off and then another thing really comes on top and like headwind puncher you know you're like god damn it yeah like to be honest i've never come to that point where yeah. i've been really cracked yet nice so i'm i'm nervous of actually reaching it because like i don't want to reach it <laughs> but maybe you're you're doing things before you know you reach that you're aware of what's going on you and you're you're letting things just slip through that's okay yeah that's okay i don't know what what is your mindset in that I like to control everything. So like, you know, yeah, when I say everything, like everything, like I'll call the guys when I'm 2K from home and I say, like I was a prick. Like I want a almond magnum and I want, you know, two and a half packs of Pringles. Like I know exactly what I want. And like, if I don't get it, I'm real fucking mm. stroppy. Yeah, right. But for me, like that's my way of controlling it. Like I know that I can get that. And if I can get that, then that's like a little tick for me because I've won, you know, like... It's everything's made, it's like a little yeah. jigsaw puzzle bang that fits in there perfectly and now the next piece i've got ready for tomorrow yeah yeah what about when things don't fit then and like i said you know you how do you overcome that yeah um it's been in, so normally my old man comes on these trips and he he almost acts as my voice of reason a little bit so i've been lucky in that when i get to that point where i'm really flipping out the old man will say, oh, you know, come on, you need to pull yourself together or, you know, he's a bit of an authority figure for me and so I respect his decision and if I'm being a bit of a prick or if I'm losing my shit a little bit and he says, you know, you need to sort yourself out, then for me that's like, oh, the teacher's told me off, like I need to just sort myself out. Yeah, okay. And I almost, you know, give in to him. This year was different because he wasn't here and so I was nervous, like, fuck, what's going to happen when I actually sort of lose it and this is an unsupported event so I can't, you know, I have to be careful like what I can and can't do. Yeah. This year I didn't, well, no, that's a lie. Day five, woke up howling headwind, like literally 40k an hour winds, rain. And I remember thinking, wow, this is going to be a long day. And I set off. Were you over it by then? Were you like, I'm, I'm getting pretty over this challenge. Like I, yeah. I, I've had enough. Or were you like, no, I'm good. I was over it, but I was like, I can taste the finish. Like, yeah. I'm so close now. Like, I just want it. <laughs> what, what were you, like, yeah. 1,500k away? Yeah. <laughs> just three days. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you know, you wake up and the wind's whistling through the roof and you just, you know it's going to be a shocker. And I, it was at 45 minutes, an hour in, and I thought, oh, I need sleep. Like, I'm just not doing so good today. And I pulled over and just had, like, 20-minute quick kit. On the side of the road? On the side of the road. And, and you went straight to sleep? Straight to sleep. Like, I was just so tired. And I got back on the bike and just felt shocking. But I thought, you know, just warm into it, put a bit of music on. I think I put a book tape on at that point. Kept going. And this at this point, we'd changed the course so to these shorter 40-kilometer laps. And I came back past the house and I thought, you know what, I need more sleep. So I pulled in and had another 20-minute nap, this time at the house, just on the couch. And I was lucky because this sort of pulled me out of the 
this sort of sleepy dark hole I was in but it it also played with me because I thought you know I've lost 40 minutes now mm. it's a howling headwind like I'm not going to hit the target today mm. and you know that day was a hard day on the bike but you know we got to the end and I was 50k short of what my goal was for that day so I think I hit 495 and that day the goal was 550 because I wanted to build up a bit of a buffer mm. And I struggled dealing with the fact that I hadn't reached my goal, but I was lucky that the guys that I had back at the house sort of talked to me around it and said, you know, I think you made a good decision. You know, they mm. sort of made me feel good about the fact that I'd called it short. Yeah. And luckily the following day I woke up and having called it short the day before, I actually woke up with a bit more energy and was ready to crack on. So, And also I guess I think the psychological side of things, you woke up with that, I've got to make up for something today. So you were sort of like eager, you know, yeah. opposed to that. I don't know. I've got no idea. I'm never that deep, but like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm on track and whatever. And it's like, no, no. And I can imagine it's like waking up and you sort of hit the ground running. I got something to achieve today. Yeah. You know, because I, I can't imagine 50K less really would have given you much more energy. I think it, it surely right. had to do a lot with the mindset. Yeah, you, you almost become that sort of, you have that underdog mindset. Yeah. Like, oh, I've got to catch up now. Am, like, am oh, I going to yeah. do this? Oh, yeah, you want to bring it? Yeah, Civilia? come on. Let's see. <laughs> you know? Well, I think that would maybe would have cracked me was I understand why you changed the loop. The, you know, the headwind back, the double headwind, for sure. I would have looked for something else. But potentially it would have been harder coming back past home every 40K. Was it or not? It was a bit because you thought... Oh, I'll just quickly dip in here and grab you know another packet of M and M's, or mm. you know, I'll just quickly you know go use the bathroom rather than using the side of the road, and you you always just the temptation just to stop in. Yeah, but you almost have to just I almost like would close my eyes as I went past the house and just keep punting out the other way. Once you went past, literally ten meters past, you're never turning around. Can't turn around then. Yeah, no. Exactly. Well, tell me about the future now, because so what what lies ahead and. What do you want to do? And we've talked a little bit about this. It's all about raising awareness and also for mental health and depression, but also for about not just simply as that, how that rolls off my tongue, but actually showing people at all levels. And we spoke about this, whether you're clinically depressed or whether it's literally just feeling Mm. low yourself, what these challenges have done for you, but what just challenges and physical exercise can do for anyone. And I know this for a fact, like, this is a, such a stupid example, but like, you know, you go out and you, you have a big drinking night the night before. The last thing you want to do the next day is go out and exercise, but you force yourself to do it and you come home, you feel like 10 men. You're like, yeah. God, I feel 10 times better about myself. You know, I, I've got a clean slate. That's yeah. something that I can relate to on a very, very, you know, simple yeah, thing. Yeah. But tell me about what lies ahead and what, what everyone can sort of take out of you. Yeah, well, we have a film coming out on Friday, which I think is has a powerful message behind it so the the film basically documents the world record but it also documents how my mind dealt with the world record and other things that i've been through so that's launching on friday 18th of december um i think people will get a lot of benefit out of watching that but in terms of what i'm doing moving forward i want to keep basically demonstrating to others that it's actually okay not to be okay you know like we look at Instagram and we look at the, you know, maybe not the news, but Facebook and, you you know, you see this ideal life and you think, why aren't I living that life? Mm. But the reality is that most people aren't living that life and it's all about being realistic with what you have and what you don't have and, you know, what actually makes you happy. I've realized I don't need, 
you know, a big house. I don't need a super fast car, like things that I used to really, really want. I don't need that to be happy. I just need three or four hours every day to jump on the bike and tick off, you know, that goal. Mm. And I'm pretty content. Like I'm happy to eat canned food and like (laughs) I'm not super fussy. I think people, yeah, just daily exercise goes a, you know, plays a massive role in keeping my mental health um, above board. And I think for others that are listening, like, yeah, I think they can perhaps take something from that as well. And even if it's a mini adventure to the to the local deli or if it's, you know, a longer something on the bike, like go for it and just get stuck in. Mm, nice. And, and is there any, any ideas that you what you want to do now? Because I feel like you've set the bar, you've set a good climbing bar, you've set a good weekly bar, good yearly bar. What, what, what are some ideas? Have you got any ideas you want to share with anyone what you're going to get up to in the next little period? Are you going to get crazier than we know? We, we yeah so next year we've got four big goals so one of them is based in portugal uh so it's the north to south of portugal cool. um with actually portugal tourism and there's a bit of a storyline behind that challenge um but a bit of portugal history in there nice the tour de france concept is going to go ahead next year tell so, us about that because yeah I, I do know about that but i don't think we've explained it fully yet yeah so basically the tour is a three-week race and you know the, the hardest bike race on earth perhaps maybe you're better off the you're better i've never, I've never ridden okay. the tour but i can imagine yeah <laughs> um i had this idea like how quickly could you ride the tour course and what would happen if so i worked it out what i think is doable and i thought you know let's try and create some excitement around the tour and add a bit of like a you know an ad- adventure slash ultra slash you know what if I gave the Tour de France Peloton a 10-day head start and then set off from the same start point 10 days later with the goal of riding every single stage of the Tour but actually arriving in Paris before the, the Peloton does? With the transfers? With the transfer, So we wouldn't ri- I wouldn't ride the transfers. Oh, okay. So the transfers, I'd, we'd, I'd jump in the car and drive as well. Okay. But basically it would equate to four or 500k a day wow. to get to Paris beforehand. And uh, yeah, exciting! The the funding for that film's come through, so that's going to happen next year. Cool. Um, we do the Champs Elysees stage. We ride the laps. I don't know how that's going to end yeah, up. Like that's that. that's going to be part of it. I think like the excitement of not knowing. How good would the time trial stage be? You oh. know, like one would be like, oh, forty k done shorty. or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I've got them today. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and then I have two projects in Bhutan again, end of next year. So. COVID depending, I guess. Uh, I'll jump over there and get stuck into them. But yeah, for now, just enjoying a bit of time in Girona and yeah, the, the cooler winter mornings. Awesome, mate. Well, it's been great to have a chat to you today. I hope, you know, we've only just sort of scratched the surface and we, we busted over some really good stuff there. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit deeper further on. Um, cheers for being on the pod, mate. Really great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, man. We'll chat soon. Cheers. Well, there we have it. A fantastic episode, I thought, and we we found some really interesting stuff out. I personally really enjoyed chatting with Jack, and I've been able to train with him a few days after that since then, and just been able to talk a little bit deeper into that conversation we're having and just finding out so much great information and so many similarities to what I suffer out on the bike myself and in these grand tours and in these races and throughout a season as a pro. So I found it really, really interesting talking to him and finding out, wow, this is a, a common thing for for everyone. What did you uh, take out of that podcast, Lionel? 
Well, I really enjoyed listening to Jack talk about the way he sets himself the goals and then breaks those goals down and sets himself micro goals within the, the bigger goal. And there's a lot of that I could relate to. That the, First of all, for ordinary cyclists like me, sometimes there's that sense of, why am I doing this? You know, I'm not, I'm not training for races. It's not my job. It's something I do for enjoyment and for that little bit of headspace that you get when you go out on a bike. But you need to, it's, it's like any kind of... Uh, muscle needs to be trained doesn't it you you feel the benefit a lot more if you're fitter a bit lighter and so all of that requires um the sort of uh, the, the mental work to get you out on the bike or get you uh, on the indoor trainer and uh, setting those little mini goals i thought i could take something from that i particularly like hearing about uh, the way he'd reward himself with something like just listening to some music on the second half of his ride and and just having something to just look forward to you know maybe for 20 or 30 kilometers where i can i can put on a song or two once uh, once i reach that point and i think uh, we can all probably take something from that but i wanted to ask you mitch about everesting and whether that's something that appeals to you because we did quite a deep dive on this for explore over on the cycling podcast um last year just talking about the this idea of riding one hill repetitively until you've scaled the height of everest is that something that you could see yourself having a go at no <laughs> <laughs> look i don't oh simple simple answer don't get me wrong i actually really enjoy training in the mountains like love it much more than the flat even though i'm a guy who probably is better racing on the flat and don't love racing in the mountains i love riding in the hills and i'm sure everyone does too because you can ride at your own pace and you can cross mountains and i'm also a bit more of a guy who likes to adventure and i use that word in terms of when i choose my ride i like to choose a loop you know feel like i'm sense of achieving it and i do a hill and I'm, that's done on to the next climb so when you get back to everything it's like the same climb over and over again to the point where you're just like absolutely dying on there i don't know if that's really me um but i do see the other side of it and this is what i think was great about jack is the power of the bike the name of the episode and the way i came for the name of that episode was the, the bike gives him power it's like his cape and i see that and it sounds very corny but it's like that's actually what the bike is for me too and i know everyone out there has that as well it's this release and whether it's everesting or whether it's trying to do box hill or whether it's trying to do whatever it is it gives you this endorphin rush when you set these mini goals and you achieve them or you go close to achieving them or it gets you out and you just free your mind and that's what i love about the pod what i love about what jack does and what he made me realize again what the bike does for me so maybe everesting would be something cool or something like that a goal that i maybe don't think i can achieve and you, you achieve it and it gives you this feeling like wow i was able to do that and i thought that was a really cool thing I was able to pull out of talking with Jack. Is that something I do every day, but I wasn't aware of it. Well, I was just going to ask before we wrap up, what's on the agenda for you racing-wise uh, with the season just underway? Um, you're riding, obviously, again with EF Pro Cycling Nippo, as the team is called this year. What's uh, your race calendar? Do you know yet? I do know a few of the races, but I was, um, I'm kicking off. I was in France just training at the moment. And then I'm going to head back there in a couple of weeks and start my first race with Hutvar. 
I haven't done that race since 2010 and I didn't love it back then because it's just pretty hard, but I'll be back there again, suffering it out. Um, and then following that, I'm going back to Strata Bianchi, which I can't wait to do because it feels like I was just in Italy doing Strata Bianchi in the heat. And the first time I did Strata was this year, uh, last year in the heat. And the second time I'll do it in its original slot in the spring. So I'm really, really intrigued to see the difference. You know, everyone said it was such a crazy one last year. And for me, it was the first time I did it. So it was all I knew. And now I'm going to go back and experience how it should really be. Um, so that's going to be going to be great. And after that, I'm going to head up to Belgium and do a few classics. And uh, Roubaix is, is on the card. So I'm very, very much looking forward to that and hoping with fingers crossed that things are going to go ahead as planned. Excellent. Yeah, definitely. You'll get a chance to hook up with uh, some of the members of the fan club, maybe at a socially distanced uh, distance, perhaps. You're, the Mitch Docker fan club will be uh, looking out for you up in Belgium, certainly. Oh, I can't wait. Can't wait to see those guys. And um, yeah, it's a shame we can't sink a few, few too many beers together, but that's just going to have to wait till another time. Well, guys, I hope you've enjoyed listening and for us sort of waffling on here at the end. But um, hang in there for a couple of weeks' time. I'll be back here recording another episode. But until then, just a reminder, get over there, subscribe. But until then, next week there'll be a talking luft. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.